Classics, a podcast from Kane Academy. I'm Andrew Swerdeman, your host. In this episode, we explore one of the most enduring works in philosophy, Plato's dialogue, The Phaedo. Joining me for the interview is my colleague, Mary Frances Loughran, Director of Writing and a Master Teacher here at Kane Academy. We recently posted Mary Frances' new guide on how to lead a seminar on The Phaedo. It's a wonderful tool for teachers, and you can find it at our website. Just go to www.kaneacademy.org and visit our shop. You'll find the guide there. It has strategic questions section by section on how to lead a great discussion on the Phaedo. Plus, it has a great set of questions to give your students for writing assignments. I hope you enjoy this episode of Classics. We recorded our discussion at the Kane Academy headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Good morning, Mary Frances. Great to see you here today at Kane Academy. Good morning. Thank you. Hey, congratulations on the publication of your uh, new guide on Plato's Phaedo. Thank you again. It was a, a great exercise to work through this dialogue again. I've taught it several times over many years, but it's been probably four years since I taught it, so it was great to revisit it and, uh, and work it out in a way that um, I haven't before. Right, to prepare it for somebody else to be able to teach it in a seminar is different than just preparing yourself every day for a seminar. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, my experience <clears throat> is when I work on one of these guides, either as a writer or an editor, I'm kind of fired up to, to jump back into seminar and you know get a discussion going yes. with some students or colleagues. Uh, so it's, it's a great exercise, and I, I love the way you put it. Uh, so as, as, as the teachers delve in with their students uh, to, you know, get through the Fado. what background should they know, <laughs> you know, and how much of it should they share with their students? <clears throat> well, the first time I taught this dialogue, I think I was two years out of college, and I had majored in philosophy, but not ever having read this dialogue. In fact, I, I well, actually, I had read it, because in a fit of enthusiasm after my freshman year philosophy course, I read all the dialogues. <laughs> but I don't know that I understood very many of them. You read the entirety of Plato's Dialogues? Yes, the summer wow. after my freshman year. I Actually, I know very few people who have actually done that. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I got myself a book, the, completed, the complete dialogues, and worked my way through it. So, so I had read it. a major philosophical <laughs> nerd there. Yeah. Oh, like, I, was, I was completely bitten yeah. by the bug, having only read um, uh, a portion of The Republic in a, in a uh, course my freshman year. Anyway. Do, do you remember what part of the Republic that was? It was the cave. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's can, about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a a classic, sometimes standard introduction yeah. for people to Plato. And exactly. You, you either get the bug or you don't. Exactly. You, you got it in spades. Yeah. I went into college as an English and history major and came out of my freshman year as a philosophy and history major. So. Nice. It uh, changed changed the course. Socrates changed the course of my education. Yeah, and here least. you are. Here uh, I am, right Decades about later, it. if we can say that without <laughs> insulting each yes, other yes, about our ages. Yes. Decades later, you're helping teachers uh, lead their students into those same beautiful dialogues. Yeah. Okay, so, so anyway, with that in mind, um, I say that because I don't think that you need to be an expert to teach one of the Socratic dialogues. Certainly there is a lot to learn. There's a lot of really great, there are a lot of really great resources out there um, to read. A.E. Taylor, um, Vogelin, if you're up to the task, 
um, Grube. There are there are a number of, of scholars that are really worth reading and and can be very helpful. But it's absolutely possible to pick it up and read it carefully, uh, mark it up, and go in with some good questions. Many of which are just going to be Socrates' questions, yeah. or the questions that are asked of him. So um, uh, I don't think that a teacher needs to share much of that, actually, with the students. Um, it would be helpful if the students understood the historical background, right? that uh, why is Socrates sitting in this jail cell? Um, it's kind of interesting because he, he poses that question himself midway through the dialogue. And, um, uh, but I think it would be important for the students to understand if they have not read the Apology, um, I'd recommend that they do. But if they haven't, if time doesn't allow for that, then um, the teacher needs to explain what the context here is for Socrates's, um, the false accusations leveled against him and um, why, and, uh, and why, he's, why he's being executed. So if you were queen <clears throat> of all reading lists for, for students, you would definitely want uh, the apology to be a prerequisite for reading the Phaedo. Any, any other dialogue that you think, you know, if, if they have the time, if you have the wherewithal, mm -hmm. uh, are there any other dialogues you say, yeah, that really should be in place before you read the Phaedo? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think really if, if they've read the Apology, uh, I mean, one could make a case for reading the Mino um, because of the theory of recollection that, that appears there and then comes up again in Phaedo, but I don't think you really need to. But one could also say uh, Crito, which is a very brief um, conversation and I think uh, expresses many of the same sentiments uh, that are expressed by Socrates and Phaedo in terms of his, why he's doing what he's doing, why he's standing by this unjust verdict. Um, but again, I, I really think the apology is, is the key, the key um, dialogue to have read before reading Phaedo. But again, it's not necessary, you don't have to, and the, and the teacher could, could fill the students in. What's the, um, so you've already given some hints about this, but can you fill out for us the immediate setting for the dialogue? You know, where is Socrates? Who's there with him? Uh, the the events that led to this. Right. So, um, well, as I mentioned, he's he's been sentenced to death in what was basically a a kangaroo court on uh, trumped up charges, leveled by a terribly corrupt um, group of individuals who wanted to see him gone. Much of that has to do with the loss by the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War and the desire of the Athenians to blame somebody for what happened there. Um, at any rate, he's been waiting, uh, uh, awaiting his execution. Um, it has been delayed, interestingly, I think, by um, a celebration of Theseus. So Theseus was the legendary Athenian hero who saved the Athenians from Minos, who was a tyrant in Crete and demanded the sacrifice of seven, I believe it was seven males, seven females every year um, to his minotaur. So every year the um, Athenians send a ship to Delos to thank Apollo and to commemorate this hero Theseus. 
And uh, until the ship returns from Delos, uh, no execution is supposed to take place. It's a kind of a, you don't, you don't do those kinds of things during um, religious festivals, which I think is very interesting. If they're so sure that it's the right thing to do, why do they refrain? Anyway, that's a, that, I'm sure that there's a lot to talk about there. Um, so this, this dialogue is actually different, I believe, than every other dialogue um, in the sense that it is a dialogue within a dialogue because Echocrates was present at this conversation, this last conversation with Socrates before he drinks the hemlock, which he does at the end of this dialogue. And um, so this, this really is the last conversation. And uh, Echocrates is on his way home to Ellis, and he's speaking with, um, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Phaedo is on his way home, and he's speaking to Echocrates uh, as they return to Ellis. And um, Echocrates was not there at that last conversation. Phaedo was, and um, he's recounting the conversation. So we're reminded of that at key moments in the dialogue. Um, the dialogue Plato brings us back to the present um, Echocrates says something or Phaedo says something that takes them out of that memory of the conversation. And um, so a lot of the names that, that uh, Phaedo mentions as being present at the dialogue are not, not the most familiar names to us unless we're scholars of um, ancient Athens or, um, or of Socrates and Plato. Crito was there and his son Critobulus was there. So those might be familiar names. Um, Plato himself was not there, he says. He was sick. So um, I think there are 15, 13, 13 individuals present at this conversation. We don't really hear from them throughout the conversation except um, for the, the main interlocutors, Simeus and Sebes. And then there are references made to you know this one who at this point cries, or, or this one who Socrates pats on the head, or, you know. So uh, the main interlocutors with Socrates are Simeus and Sebes. I think that's so interesting that there's such a good handful of, of witnesses to mm -hmm. the conversation, his final conversation, and to the way he dies. Um, it's almost like a, a, a wonderful testimony. You know, yeah. It's a great, and it's very... And it's so marked by uh, friendship mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. gr great human uh, pathos there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, we do think of the Phaedo as a dialogue about the death of Socrates. So in one respect, it's, it's kind of an account. And we have these witnesses. We have kind of a testimony to it. On another level, it's a final conversation between Socrates and his friends. So what in a nutshell do they discuss? Well, I've always thought it was... Um a very sad irony, and and I point this out to the students, especially when you're, you know, halfway into the dialogue and you're wrestling with these really um, heavy or maybe not heavy the word is the word, but very abstract ideas. Uh, it's easy to forget that they're sitting in a jail cell and they're talking about whether or not there's any kind of post existence, post post bodily existence. Um, so is the soul completely annihilated? Does the soul even exist? I mean, they, they move from question to question. 
and here's the man discussing this. He's being asked these questions, and he's the one about to experience death, and and uh, and yet he's he's uh, willing to to um, to go with the conversation, to go where his his uh, mistress truth leads, and um, but I do think it's important for students to be reminded. You know, where are we? <laughs> was the setting here and and to note that dramatic element that Socrates is is uh, a very loving and caring father to these um, younger well they're not all younger but um, many of them are younger and he's trying to impart hope to them knowing uh, as they say uh, that he's going to be gone soon and so they want to get as many things clear now um, as they can, because they know that he won't be around to ask. You know, it reminds me of how, you know, we might do that with our own um, older members of our family. As they as they age, we want to get some things straight, you know, because we're not sure if we'll have the source any longer. And once that source is gone, you know, what will we do? Mm-hmm. And on these questions that are so pressing um, for these young people living in a under a, a pretty tyrannical government or a government system, the assembly, uh, this is this is really important that they get some of these things right, and and Socrates is willing to have that conversation with them. It's also um, um, it's also a very modern conversation that the the questions are are enduring questions. Um, we still talk about whether or not there is such a thing as a soul, and if there is, what is it? Um, what's it like? Is it independent of the body? What's the relationship between the what we would call the physical body, what we might call the non-physical soul? Is it just the same thing as the brain, um, etc.? So I think it's very modern, and in that sense, it has a lot of um, importance to Uh, our students and um, very worth talking about. Socrates gives some, uh, well, as he says, they're not um, airtight arguments, um, but they might be the best a man can do, he says at one point. And uh, they certainly give us something to hang our hat on. at the beginning, he, he gives an answer right away from the beginning. Um, I think it's within the first know, 100 lines even, less than 100 lines. He says, well, he's not worried because he thinks that there is reason to hope. Mm-hmm. And why is there a reason to hope? Because the gods are good. And he has sought to live his life in service to the god or the gods and as he has understood it. And so he doesn't see any reason to fear death. And he returns to that at the end, actually, after having given some interesting arguments, maybe some, in some ways compelling arguments. Uh, but he returns at the end. You know, if, you just, if you just open the, the dialogue, you know, if you have facing pages, you can just see hope, 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 hope. It's just it's all over, all over the, the text. Because at the end of the day, that's really where he ends. Uh, he, he has no reason to fear and every reason to hope that uh, he's moving on to something as good, if not better. 
That's such a beautiful insight. Uh, sometimes uh, the dialogues get us to clarity about a term or a concept. You know, can you teach virtue? What is virtue? You know, uh, should I live justly or unjustly? Well, what is justice? You know, what does it mean to live justly? Um, sometimes the dialogues are preparations for action, and so in, and in a sense, it's in a, a long, in fact, the longest tradition in in literature in the ancient world. So. Um, I asked uh, Professor uh, Gregory Nodge from Harvard about a year ago. I said, well, why should we read the Iliad? And he <clears> says, to learn how to die. And he mm-hmm. meant by that both the, 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 the way to die on the battlefield, you know, mm-hmm, c- courageously mm-hmm, in the face mm-hmm. of the threat of physical death, but also the kind of the spiritual, moral, social uh, death that's exemplified by Achilles when he relents and he gives the body of Hector back to Priam. Mm-hmm. He sort of dies to himself, right? Right, right. And uh, the two of them mourn together. This old man, this these mortal enemies, really, they mourn together over the, the deaths mm-hmm. of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought that was really poignant. We had the, you know, uh, Oedipus of Colonus and, uh, and Antigone kind of set in relief those two characters, Oedipus and, and Antigone, you know, I, how do you die? What do you die for? You know, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, um, and then uh, this this is such a great uh, recurrent theme in uh, the dialogues. How do you live, right? right. Philosophy is a way of life, you know. Right. How do you live justly? How do you live towards the truth? So given, without, as kind of a background, how would you describe the thrust or the purpose of the Phaedo? Is it, is it helping us get clear on any key terms? Is it in any way preparing us for action? I would say uh, primarily the latter. I think all the dialogues share that common purpose, as you as you you say, um, call us on to to live rightly, reflectively, justly, um, to be attached or attuned to the to the right things, the proper things that are worthy of our admiration and adoration and imitation. Um, so I think Fado Fado is no different in that respect. The stakes are higher, for sure. Um, Socrates is about to leave the life, this life as we know it. Um, there are a couple moments throughout the dialogue that I think Socrates points this out, but I wanted to point this one out. It's it's towards the end of the dialogue, and he says, uh, "It is right to think, then, gentlemen, that if the soul is immortal, it requires our care." not only for the time we call our life, but for the sake of all time, that one is in terrible danger if one does not give it that care. If death were escape from everything, it would be a great boon to the wicked to get rid of the body and of their wickedness together with their soul. And he, he goes on. So I think that's the reminder all the way through. You know, he, he mentions another very arresting scene. He talks about, um, you know, how sometimes we go to a, a graveyard and... And we we sense the the, pre- the, the presence of, of ghosts and or something like that. And he says it's it's the those who have riveted their soul to the body. You know they're just they're pulled down. It's this you know as as Augustine later says it's their weight. It's the it's the it's the gravity. Um, so what we're attached to really matters. And I think so in, in that sense I think it is a call to action. It is a you know live your life carefully. <laughs> Um, make your choices reflectively and with an eye to um, the right way to live. Um, and I think I think the 
it's easy for the students to miss that and teachers too. You know, we can get bogged down in the arguments and, uh, and well, gee, that doesn't make sense or isn't that a contradiction of what he said here or there and et cetera, et cetera. Does he really believe in reincarnation? How could he believe such a thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and even Socrates admits that much of what they have concluded needs further proof. So he doesn't think he's provided an airtight argument, but he does think that he has done his best for his friends. And, and as I said, you know, he, he knows and they know that he's no longer going to be available to them to bolster their hope and their resolve. Uh, and so he, he wants to give it his all now. Um, so I think it's, there are some things that we get clearer on. You know, what do we mean when we talk about the soul? Um, or at least, what do we mean in this conversation? What do we mean when we talk about the forms? I think his discussion of, of the forms or the, the ideas is uh, very helpful in this, um, this dialogue in particular. Uh, sometimes the, that, that theory can take on kind of a, a very abstract and almost religious connotation. And I think here it has less of that. And, um, and more of just a sense of there. Don't we have to believe that there's some bottom line, that there's some objective reality against which we can judge everything else, everything from you know, defining what a table is to what is uh, truth or what is beautiful. So I think um, that's a really great element of this, of this dialogue too. So those, those two practical things, the soul and the forms, and then this, this greater mission of a, a call to action, how we should live. Wonderful. What, what are some of the greatest challenges in teaching the Phaedo? Uh, you know, potential pitfalls that uh, s- students might uh, hit or uh, teachers might lead their students into. And, uh, you know, are there difficult sections to navigate, <clears throat> sections more difficult than others? I think once we hit the, the, the big objections of Simeus and Sebes, which are in modern terms biological materialism and epiphenomenalism. Now, I wouldn't use those words with, with a student because um, they well, don't need it. I'm impressed it. that you can say epiphenomenalism on, on, a, <laughs> on a podcast without uh, tripping up. Is that, fact, is I, that I, philosophy I background? Be, that's right. That's what I learned in philosophy classes, how to say the words. Now you're so literate. You're mm-hmm. so good with language. But the, that, that's a $25,000 term. Yes. Well, I think we face those same claims today. We don't necessarily call them by those names, but I think that the danger in this dialogue is getting, as I mentioned before, stuck in the weeds or losing the, losing the forest for the trees. Is that how you, that, that saying goes? Um, Could you actually stop and just say a little something about each of those objections? Uh, uh, yeah, each of those terms, biological materialism and epiphenomenalism. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I've said it twice now yeah. without uh, dropping the ball. <clears throat> well, the, excuse me, the, the uh, uh, epiphenomenalism is basically saying that anything that we think is, is our soul or any, any manifestation or any experience that we have that we think is soul-like is really nothing more than sort of the the residue of, of uh, uh, our body. Um, biological materialism is actually very similar. 
right? And uh, what it boils down to is there is no such thing as anything other than biology. So if you think that what you're experiencing is even something like the mind, they would say, no, that's, you're, you don't have anything like mind. You don't have anything like free will. It's all, um, uh, it's very deterministic and uh, genetic. Um, all you are is what you are, genetically and um, biologically. And so anything that you think is more than that is, is, uh, is just false. So, or is the workings of your biology. And I think, boy, we, we hear both of those things quite frequently, um, probably especially the latter. Uh, I think you know, a, lot of, a lot of the atheists that are very popular right now are, are uh, making that argument. And it really is an argument for determinism. And um, a lot of the psychological and psychiatric um, theories and conclusions would say that you know we really are pretty much determined by our biology and our our uh, genes. So, so I think personality types, right? And uh, yeah, so you're not truly free. You sort of there's uh, there's there's nurture and there's nature and there's a heavy emphasis on nature and the, right. and it's deterministic. As right, you, as you right, know. right. Uh, so I think I think those are really, really substantive objections, and uh, I think it's important for students to take them seriously. Even I mean, maybe especially students who are not. Um, inclined to do so, you know, they, they may have a lot of faith and they may have a way of looking at the world that is informed by Christianity, and um, but they probably more than anybody else need to to take on these objections and and um, see what they can do with them. And Socrates is a great help. Um, so I think that, but I, as I said before, I do think the danger is getting getting lost in the weeds. And um, there is a point in the conversation that's actually very poignant. They've, there's a division between the, the, the first part of the dialogue and the second part of the dialogue. I mean, there, you could divide it in lots of different ways, but this is one division where uh, he's, Socrates has dealt with some, uh, trivial is not the right word, but they're less powerful arguments in the first part. And he's kind of, you know, dealt with them, and um, and at the same time, he has helped uh, his interlocutors clarify, or at least state, some important things that they do want to hold on to. Some and he, and Socrates is always very clear to say that these are assumptions, right? So they're not necessarily proven; they're assumptions, and um, but they're assumptions that may be worthy of. Assuming, <laughs> and once you've assumed them, then other things follow. So he's done that. He's he's kind of laid that groundwork in the beginning of the dialogue, the first part of the dialogue, and then the second part. There's a there's a shift because um, it's clear that there are some rumblings in the room, and not everybody is convinced, and they have these kind of you know they have these more serious objections to make, and 
And uh, Socrates basically says, "Why well, you think you think I can't take it? You know, <laughs> bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, who would I be? What would it mean that I've I've said all the things that I've said in the past if I wasn't willing to 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 continue the the conversation as as far as we can take it? And um, it's actually Simeus who at that point points out that um, we can't always demand precise knowledge on these things. Something that um, is echoed later, I, interestingly, by Aristotle. But, um, and, and also in contradiction to what takes place in Mino, where the interlocutor, the main interlocutor there, Mino, pretty much gives up. Says, oh, you know, we can't ever know these things. It's, you know, why do we keep on trying, blah, blah, blah. Which I ran into that many times in my college career, where people would say things like that. So... But Simeon says, you know, we, we can't have precise knowledge, but we should be content to sail along on a sturdy raft until we find a sturdier one. And then we jump to that one and, and keep, on, keep on moving forward. And, um, and that's exactly what they do in the conversation. They move forward. And um, so, in other words, I, the going gets rough sometimes in this, in this, this conversation. Um, but Socrates encourages us not to abandon seeking the truth. In fact, we can't because the risk is too great. Um, it's not only about our future, but it's about our present. And, I mean, frankly, the reason that he's sitting there in jail and about to be executed is because of people who did not seek the truth. And um, he later then talks about his own intellectual journey and how he took refuge in words in argument, in conversation, discussion, um, and that really is the only proper place to pursue, find the truth. And I think that's, I think all those things that I just mentioned are really key things for the students to understand, um, particularly when the conversation, the dialogue gets hard, difficult to understand. Um, another. A pitfall or a place where where teachers might want to be um, attuned to what the students are thinking uh, is it's easy to think that Socrates himself ascribes to some of the Pythagorean notions that Simeus and Sebes do ascribe to. Uh, for instance, reincarnation, but I don't think that's the case. Um, he's discussing with at least two members of that sect, and he's employing that language. He's always trying to find some common ground with his interlocutors. Can we start with this assumption? And, and you'll, the careful teacher can lead her students, if they're reading carefully, uh, to see that it's not the assumption of reincarnation that is um, uh, ultimately accepted. It's the assumption that there is such a thing as truth. It's the forms. That's what's um, accepted as being bedrock. So he uses the, the language of reincarnation, in a sense, to get inside their box, in the Pythagorean box, in yep. order to talk to them about truth right. and the forms. Right. So, so I think that's, uh, the teacher, it would be helpful if the teacher would make sure that the students see that, if they're not seeing it. I, I don't, I never think it's a good idea in a, in a seminar to be heavy-handed and start lecturing about these things. But you can take them to the text and you can say, okay, we'll see see what was accepted here and what wasn't accepted and you know see how even when something is proven uh, the, the soul's post-existence or post-bodily existence is proven 
Socrates comes back at it again. Yeah. You know, well, he already proved it with the reincarnation thing. Well, that's not that's not something that he cares about. Um, what he does care about are that the soul is akin to it's it's more like these things which are divine, and um, that's the gods, that's the forms that are everlasting. So I think that's important. Um, that could be a pitfall for for the students and for the teacher. That, that is a really good reminder. Uh, it, it it seems to me that's akin to uh, something that, that I try to do with students before we read the dialogues for the first time. I I, uh, I give them a little bit of history of, you know, uh, so some of the things that you mentioned earlier, the, the Peloponnesian <clears throat> War, and what that meant for sort of the collapse of Athenian culture mm. the, the, and the rise of corruption and the, the requirements that for, for words, for reasoning, for persuasion, for a new kind of exchange where the, the drama had been so important mm-hmm. uh, in the experience of catharsis, in a sense that whole construct, that framework for working things out has sort of collapsed. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, if, but if the dialogues were a new form of drama, that means the careful reader has to look at who's saying what to whom at exactly. what point in the conversation. Exactly. Kind of like the way we exactly. explore uh, actors in a play or yeah. characters in a play. Yeah. There's also a, a, another pitfall which I um, uh, occurred more often than I would have thought it would have occurred with students, is that they, um, looking at some of those dramatic elements, they interpret them incorrectly, and part of that's because of the you know the wider culture you know claiming everybody's homosexual, and so. They would sometimes think, oh, you know, why is he why is he playing with somebody? I can't remember which character it is. You know, why is he playing with his hair? I said, well, he's he's eighty year old man. He's it's like he's patting his head. It's not you know, it just so there are things like that that it's it's good to dispel them. Otherwise, you know, a young student reading these things for the first time um, can really get sidetracked by some of that stuff, which is which is un- unfortunate because it's in the air. Um, another thing too that they can get sidetracked by is they might they might bristle at the notion of the forms and especially how he uses them. He talks about coldness, fleeing before the heat, and it's a funny way to talk. And so I always did an exercise with my students, which they still come back to me, you know, years later, and they say, "I remember that conversation we had about tables," and <laughs> it was about tables. About tables. We were trying. I was trying to come up with a uh, a good example of what he's getting at, right? So, how is it that that you know children, little ones who are first learning how to speak, can recognize what a table is and 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 what it's for so quickly and. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, I remember my kids building little forts outside on tree stumps. You know, the tree stump was the table. It was the center place of their little home. And uh, anyway, the, the point is we would do this exercise where I would try to help them. I would push them to define what a table is. And it was really hard. It was really, really difficult to do so. And so they began to understand um, why defining Things and and the, the the use of language and um, uh, defining your terms is so important and and not always so easy to do and has something to do with the purpose of a thing that was also kind of a key 
key thing that they took away from that conversation, which then helped when we read Aristotle. But, um, but also on the heels of what you mentioned, the Peloponnesian War, you know, Thucydides has that great passage where he talks about the civil war in Corsaira and how language was inverted. You know, what was what had been deemed to be good was now bad, and what was you know. So the changing of of language, and that's again, that's very. Um, relevant uh, in our in the world today, um, the meaning of words and defining things carefully. So anyway, all of that is to say that when a teacher can help students understand the relevance, and I don't like to use that word, but um, importance maybe is better better word to uh, uh, to these things that he brings up, to these ideas that he brings up. Um, it takes it out of just this pure academic exercise, and um, that's important, I think, for this dialogue. Yeah, it's not a pure academic exercise. It's not even a pure historical exercise. We're not doing archaeology right. in order to understand ancient Greece. Right. I mean, you, one would need to understand the dialogues in order to understand what's going on in ancient Greece. But at the end of the day, it's, I think what you're pointing to is the, the kind of the one of the great payoffs for reading the dialogues that we actually see things more clearly. Right. Actually understand things. And, right. And in, when we see and understand, we can you know, take responsibility. Yeah, these are, these are enduring questions, enduring concerns. And, uh, and it's, it's a great opportunity for reading these di- this dialogue is a great opportunity for getting some of those things clearer getting our heads straight about uh, the fact that there is something objectively true. Well, um, well let's push this a little bit further. Yeah. I like this. All these tips are terribly helpful, by the way. Um, so uh, let's let's pick up that language uh, that I used uh, just a, a minute ago, <clears throat> payoff. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a bad word, but wh- wh- why is Plato's Phaedo a classic text? You know, it's a classic meaning it's enduring. Mm-hmm. And uh, we assume that it's enduring for good reasons. So, you know, why should students read this text? Uh, well, and, and in asking yeah. that, I'm, yeah. it's not to reflect on badly on everything you said. Sure. Everything you said, in a sense, is an apologia for reading the text. But maybe Hope you so. could <laughs> kind of push through, yeah, but kind of push through to emphasis. You know, why yes. this text? Yes, I think there's there are so many. I mean, beyond beyond the uh, the apparent subject of the conversation, which is the soul. I mean, sometimes people will say we'll call Phaedo on the soul, subtitle it on the soul, and that's hugely helpful and important for the reasons I mentioned before, um, because it's those are enduring questions. We still have those questions about whether or not there is anything after death. After death of the body, is there such a thing as a soul? Are we free? All those things are still important questions that we wrestle with. But there are these other things that are thrown in in this thrown into this particular dialogue, which I think are particularly um, helpful, and and also just for lack of a better word, they're just kind of fun. Um, the conversation having to do with you know, as I mentioned. Uh, defining things, you know, that's that's really helpful, and and it's also fun. The students really 
get a lot out of that. Um, another one that's that's also helpful and and fun, and that they can you know kind of get their arms around is uh, what he says about the senses. This is another place where this where the students you know a good teacher is going to help the students not get sidetracked. Right from the very beginning, he mentions. I mentioned this passage before. He says you know it's really his hope and his trust in the gods that is his reason for hope and um, uh, that helps him to face death without fear. Uh, but he mentions, you know, he says, well, and then there, there's the language of the mysteries, and they say blah, 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 and that's, uh, you know, that our, our souls are imprisoned in our body. And, um, and he says something like, uh, well, that's an interesting but difficult thing to understand. And, and then he moves on to what he thinks. Now, sometimes the students think that was the answer. So they, they, go, they go for that Pythagorean thing, you know, that, that, um, which, you know, is this Gnostic belief that gets, you know, pulled up over and over and over again throughout history, and, and we have it in its own, you know, incarnation today. Um, and that conversation is a really fun conversation to have. Um, well, why, why would somebody say such a thing? Or is there a way in which Socrates does ascribe to that? Because it does kind of come up again. He uses that same language when he talks about how our senses deceive us. And that, again, is a really wonderful conversation. It's a great moment for the students, and they begin to understand that even if I'm not going to ascribe, and I, again, I don't think Socrates does ascribe to the fact that you know our souls are imprisoned in, a, in our bodies. I don't think he believes that. Um, but I think he does believe, and the students begin to understand why he would believe, that there are some real problems <laughs> with our senses. They, they don't always give us accurate information. Sometimes they deceive us, and sometimes they can't give us any information whatsoever. Well, maybe not whatsoever, but they can't give us very clear information sometimes of the very biggest things, the highest things, the, you know, the capital T, truth. Um, so that is not only is it a payoff, but it uh, so these other these other conversations that are embedded in this bigger conversation about the soul are are really helpful and important, and they're also just a lot of fun. It's a, they're uh, uh, they're great food for discussion, and uh, the students really I think get a lot out of it. They at the end of the day they might not really get. Um, they might not be able to say to you, you know, a year after reading Phaedo and, and discussing it, they may not be able to repeat to you the argument for the immortality of the soul, but they will be able to talk to you, I hope, about uh, the forms and why it's important to believe that there is such a thing as objective truth. They'll be able to talk to you about um, our, you know, how our senses can deceive us. They'll be able to uh, express to you um, what these objections are and why they're so important, even if they can't give quite the answer. And I hope that they're able to say that at the end of the day, we have to go with the strongest argument. And, and that's going to rest upon some assumptions. And let's make sure that we adopt the most worthy assumptions, the things that seem to make the most sense, and be ready to abandon ship when uh, something that's clear and um, and is a better account um, comes our way. So, among other things, which I can't remember at, the point, at this moment but that I've mentioned. So I think all those things are, are, are a payoff. Um, 
And also we just, we, we see, you know, going back to what you said about this being a, uh, a drama, we get to see more of Socrates' character and um, maybe more so than any, in any of the other dialogues. We really get to see him mm-hmm. and, uh, and how he cares for, loves um, these guys that have been following him and trying to learn from him and uh, he's trying to give them his best, his best shot before he leaves. And uh, you, you've painted a very hopeful picture, mm-hmm. or I should say, um, maybe you painted a, you've accounted for the content of the dialogue in a way that seems like we arrive at an experience of hope. Yes. And uh, do you and you earlier when you were talking about important sections, you said hope, hope, hope. You just mm-hmm, repeated that. Mm-hmm. Is that hope directly related to the love that Socrates has for his friends? I don't know if it is. Um, I mean, well, let's see. It's related in this sense. He wants to leave them with that hope mm-hmm. because he cares about them so much, cares about them so deeply. He does not want them. He does not want their souls to be riveted to the body in the ways that the sophists are and that so many around them are uh, living a life of hedonistic pleasure because that's all there is, you know, YOLO. <laughs> or, or, or pursuing power. <clears throat> pursuing power. Just using words for the, for the sake yep. of dominating others. So he's, you know, he's, he's standing out there with his, you know, arms outstretched, stop, you know, pushing the culture back, which in many respects is what we're doing as teachers of, of the classics um, in, in humanities. We're, we're trying to push the culture back, all of its negative influences. Actually, we're not trying to push the culture back. We're trying to push the negative influences of the culture back or the, you know, the disturbing subcultures that we see, we're trying to push those back for our students long enough that they can see that there are these other things, you know, that are beneath and that are bedrock, and that are, um, uh, and if and if we have done that well, as Socrates is trying to do in this conversation, then um, we have given them hope that there is more, and and then we can also have hope that our students will do well, that they will, uh, not in any, um, you know worldly way but do well in terms of how they live their lives and that's that's what Socrates says over and over again it's 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 uh, it's a risk worth taking because it has everything to do with not just how we die and not what may or may not happen after we die but with how we live that is a, a beautiful way to wrap up this uh, exchange you've uh, not only tied up the content of the uh, the Phaedo really beautifully. You've also kind of reinforced the beautiful vision that uh, that we get, that we attain when we, we work through the dialogue. Mm-hmm. So there it is from Socrates to Mary Frances Lockery, <laughs> countercultural teachers uh, pointing the way to vision and hope. Well, it's you know it's it's interesting. I I think if we if we could be the kind of teacher that Socrates is in that last conversation that he's having with his his friends boy, wouldn't that be dynamite? We'd all be such wonderful teachers. That would be dynamite. Mary Frances, thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. It's been great. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Classics. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and we'll keep the conversation going. We have more great episodes coming soon, so please join me again and bring your friends and family. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. For everyone at Kane Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics. <laughs>